So we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 specifically. I want to read just those first uh, few verses tied to our context. And then we will, uh, we will certainly look at and explain what it means. Uh, I wanted to concentrate our time. We'll actually look at the whole first major section. So we'll, we'll focus on, in the beginning of the sermon, uh, 1 to 6. And then we'll end with looking at uh, the verses related to 7 through 11. Uh, I want to read just the first six to set our context. And then we'll make our way through the entire uh, that entire, entire first major section. Uh, does any one of you, verse 1, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. And so Paul is dealing with uh, what we are considering this morning. That is the believers judgments. The believers judgments. And so we look at how the believers are to judge matters uh, that spring up in the life of the church. And Paul was concerned for the Corinthians because he had issues with them. And one of the issues that you'll see that comes through in this section is that the issue he had was they were a fractured people. So they were people who were fractured between themselves. And it was evident in the way that they were those who were uh, uh, kind of thrown down because of conflict, but they also did not handle conflict the, the appropriate way, the right way. And first we see that because Paul addresses them in the area of lawsuits. So they had lawsuits among themselves, not simply conflict. And I believe that these lawsuits, as we look at this passage, they stem from the conflicts associated with the factions that were created. Because once you have developed factions and you have individuals who are operating exclusive of one another when they should be in fellowship with one another, well, then once they have conflicts, they will treat each other as though uh, those issues uh, cannot be resolved amongst themselves. And so that was Paul's issue with them, that they were certainly a divided people. Uh, and much to their shame, the Corinthians, they were an immoral people. They were a divided people and they were an immoral people because I believe that they had a strong temptation to worship self. And you see a lot of what stems from what Paul is trying to correct is the arrogance of vanity. And so they wanted what they wanted. And when there was even a conflict among them, they sought to resolve the conflict by taking each other to the world's court system, to pagan court systems to resolve their conflicts. And so they trusted in the world system. And that's what Paul is trying to uh, take them away from, that they had a unhealthy, misplaced and deceived trust in the world system, especially in the area of handling matters concerning the church. And then they had a mistrust of Paul, the apostle. We saw that in the previous context. And I believe that that's tied together. They had a mistrust of Paul, the apostle. 
and felt like he was not someone who could handle their conflicts. And so they were trivial uh, with respect to when he would arrive to Corinth and what he would do when he got there and if he were going to come at all. But they were in the business of sinning in the life of the church and also trying to resolve their conflicts within the construct of the world system against one another. So we, we see this because there were lawsuits among themselves. In other words, the Corinthians were suing one another. They were suing one another. And cases were being brought before unbelieving judges and magistrates who essentially would not even be qualified to lead uh, them in the matters of the church. And so Paul is saying you are quite deceived that you're going to the world that you will judge to handle matters that you ought to be judging for yourselves. And he doesn't wait for there to be an elder tribunal. He doesn't wait for there to be some leaders uh, who specialize in areas of conflict resolution. He's telling them, you are born again. You serve the living Christ. And if you have evidence of that, then you are then qualified to handle conflicts amongst yourselves. And it is why I believe that you don't have to introduce all these systematic programs for people to resolve their mess, their conflicts. I believe if they're truly born again in Christ Jesus, then they don't have to go to courts. They don't have to come to the people, the so-called elders who stand before them, and most of the time don't even know what the conflicts are. They have to go to one another. And when they have these conflicts, they go to one another because they're both in Christ and they can resolve those conflicts amongst themselves because they're in Christ, because we're all in Christ. And we want what he wants, and we want what he wants for one another. And so Paul is appealing to that as a means to stop this rampant uh, disintegration of the life of the church and its fellowship by taking lawsuits to the world's judges. You can almost sense his frustration when he asks the questions he asks in the text before us. You can sense his frustration, not an unholy or unrighteous frustration, but I believe that Paul has a righteous indignation. I believe that there is an embarrassment that we sense in this text with respect to Paul toward them, that he is embarrassed that not only are they sinning and being immoral and taking one another to court and acting like the world, but they're telling the world you can resolve the church's matters on our on our behalf. And Paul is embarrassed. He's embarrassed that it has gone that far. Their conflicts were not only evident in the factions, but you can see the schism. You can see that something has been torn asunder. Something has been ripped apart. That you see that these individuals are now viewing one another as threats and not as fellow believers. They don't have a heart of compassion toward one another. They want what they want because they have been wronged. And in, and in wanting what you want because you've been wrong, you go to the world to make it right. And so what Paul is essentially saying, and I believe it's implicit in the text, is that you are betraying one another. You're handing one another over to the world system instead of wanting what God wants when you come into conflict with one another. And so Paul has an issue with that, and we should have an issue with that. It was that they were taking offense to one another. And they were seeking to preserve themselves against one another. Now, you and I know that that's how you and I have to move in the world in which we live. 
that we have to be wise as serpents, innocent as, as doves. Jesus says, make for yourself friends of the unrighteous mammon. You have to move in a very calculated way in the world system, especially when you're amongst those who hate Christ and who want to attack anyone and anything that belongs to him. You must move that way. Yet in the life of the church, you ought not have to move that way. You ought to be able to enjoy fellowship with one another. And if disagreements and conflicts arise, you can resolve them with one another by sitting down and opening up God's word and appealing to his wisdom and appealing to what is in the best interest of each person involved, considering others better than yourselves in order to resolve the issues that would otherwise cause the life of the church uh, to become non-existent. So you see that what the Corinthians possessed was a spirit of self-preservation, a hostility toward one another. And this also is a symptom that shows the diagnosis is a hostility toward Christ. I'm not saying that they have reached that point where we are now. I'm saying they're headed there because so far I, I mentioned that Paul is still appealing to them as brothers. He's just saying that your immaturity is shining through. Your immorality is shining through. I need there to be a confession. I need there to be repentance. Now, the evidence that they would otherwise depart from that clear testimony would be in in the area with which they persist in wickedness and unholiness. But Paul is saying, "I, I I want you to stop living like the world and handling things like the world does because you once did ascribe to a confession of faith and practice it as such. That's what many don't say about the Corinthians. It wasn't always the way it looks now. When we began in this chapter, uh, I'm sorry, when we began in Corinthians in this book, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the Corinthians were at that time demonstrating evidence. Paul said it. You have demonstrated that you were born again and your lives were marked by that, but now you're departing from that. So either it's a departure demonstrating that you have never tasted his grace or it's a departure demonstrating that you need to repent because this will get worse for you if you do not confess your sins before him. So there's the need for the ongoing confession and the ongoing trusting of Christ's work uh, for the Christian uh, who sins. And yet I do believe that they will at times, as we see here, bear evidence to the fact in persisting in immorality, persisting in these areas as we move through the text, they're going to demonstrate that they are a faithless people, not all of the Corinthians, but I would say the large majority of them demonstrate a certain faithless uh, attitude once we progress through the book. Uh, But here Paul is appealing to them in love. He's appealing to them to repent. They were supposed to be ministering to one another's needs, not litigating against one another's needs. They weren't supposed to be taking from each other. They were supposed to be giving to one another. And so you see there's a fleshly view that the Corinthians had toward this life in general. They fought for what they had amassed in this life with little regard for eternal life. So they were fighting for what they had in this life with no regard for eternal life. And this is what drove them toward the lawsuits against one another, that they wanted what they wanted now. And again, they were supposed to be ministering to one another's needs. The neighbor to which Paul refers in verse one, and we'll get there, is the neighbor in the context of fellowship. Okay, 
Look at verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, he's talking about those who are not only neighborly, but neighbors who are in the household of faith. And so he's speaking of the believers in the context of them having fellowship together, but also being those who are the neighbors primarily, because they're spending their time with one another in matters of the faith. And so he's not just talking about neighbors in a general sense, because he does provide a distinction between the neighbor and the outsiders. If you look at as verse one continues, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So the neighbors here to which he refers are the saints. And then there's the unrighteous who are outside of that particular fellowship. And they were bypassing their neighbors to resolve the disputes and going to the unrighteous. So they were hoping that the righteous, this is the insanity of it. They were hoping that the righteous would be judged by the unrighteous. And they were hoping that the unrighteous would make righteous judgments. That's insanity. And yet they were setting each other before one another in that regard. And so you see that you see that here, that he provides that distinction. The outsiders were those who were in the world system. They were the outsiders, the neighbors who was the neighbors to whom Paul refers was one uh, or the ones who should have been regarded as fellow believers in Christ. So here you see the deceitfulness of sin taking its course and the deceitfulness of factions that you see that they were treating the believers as unbelievers and treating the unrighteous as wise believers. That is where factions go. That is where they have gone in the modern time in which we find ourselves, where Christians are told you're not welcome here, but unbelievers are told you're wise because you either have the credentials, you have the finances. And so people are treated as though they are wise. And then there is a greater respect. Listen to this. This is the problem, I believe, of modern evangelicalism, uh, but I believe individual Christians wrestle with this. There is a greater respect for the court systems of the world system than there is for individual believers to resolve issues. There's a greater respect. Now, I'm not saying criminal behavior should only be resolved by the world's, uh, I'm sorry, by the church's people. I'm saying that there are ministers of justice who need to step in and execute justice. But I'm also saying for conflicts that really people are not in harm or endangered, believers should be able to resolve those conflicts and should not have to rely upon the courts to enter in and resolve those conflicts. Well, part of it, because you should be able to take believers at their word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But this is deceitfulness. And what you see here is that Paul did not prevent conflict for agreement's sake. He wasn't simply saying, let's all agree and let's not have conflict. Instead, in verse one, he wrote that believers needed to resolve their conflicts amongst themselves, not selecting mediators from the unrighteous to judge the matters of the righteous. This is why conflicts are raging in people's hearts and in people's so-called fellowships. I mean, I'm acquainted with just knowing what's out here, that you have people who are attending churches together and they can't stand each other. They hate each other. And if they could take each other to court, they would. And they probably do. But they don't like each other. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because they're aligned to factions. And those factions cause you to want to preserve yourself 
Even if the factions aren't established by the faction leaders, you have you have positioned yourself to be with factions and identify them. And Paul doesn't simply say, well, let's pretend to agree or let's not talk about it or let's pray about it. He says, resolve it. You should be able to, with the full weight of God's wisdom before you, you should be able to resolve any conflicts that come up among you. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that the church is to only deal with matters of conflict in a way where someone is endangered and we lock out the justice system. That is not what I'm saying, because places such as the Roman Catholics, they lock out the just modern evangelicals do it, too. They'll lock out the justice system when the justice system needs to come in. But what he's saying is, let us resolve the conflicts before us before they escalate to a place where you and I are standing before magistrates. And we then are now expecting the unrighteous to make righteous judgments for us. So they were doing it at a at a a volume that I believe warranted Paul mentioning mentioning uh, this very point. So he wrote that believers needed to resolve conflicts among themselves. They needed to resolve the conflicts, however long that takes, whatever that looks like. He doesn't necessarily go to the fact that there always needs to be mediation or mediators. People live for that. They live for the high drama of conflict mediation. Paul says, no, resolve it yourselves. You got into this. Look to God's wisdom to get you out of it. Your flesh brought you into the conflict. Look to the spirit to get you out of the conflict. So that's what Paul is saying. And the saints, I believe this as Paul said it to them then, and I believe it now. The saints were perfectly equipped to handle matters of disputes among themselves. They were perfectly equipped. And they were equipped because all they needed and all they had was the word and prayer. They were perfectly and are perfectly equipped today to handle these things that arise. Paul did not require some manual or program to handle issues that arose between believers. He didn't say you got to go through this degree program. You have to go through this particular 10 step program. You have to wait until there's three guys calling themselves elders in the room. What he says is you two resolve it. But your resolution uh, is based upon the word of God. Your resolution is based upon the word of God. So all that was required is this to resolve conflict. Listen to this, because Paul appeals to this. All that was required to resolve conflict. And I'm not being overly simplistic. It was to be born again by God's spirit. So a lot of people in conflict may not even be born again, but they're in conflict and to possess his wisdom. In other words, be a Christian. If you're a Christian, Christians can resolve The conflicts and you possess his wisdom in his word, you possess his wisdom in his word. And then he says that you should not be acting like those who are to be judged if you are going to sit in judgment against the world. That would be so silly if you think about it. He says saints would judge the world. Look at verse two. Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? He's talking about believers. And if the world is judged by you, he's talking about believers, especially the believers there. Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? These civil matters, these disagreements that come up, whether they be financial, whether they be matters of offense, whatever these things that take place, you can handle these things. 
So the saints are equipped in this way because Paul says you're going to judge the world. And he's regarding this, I believe, to the end times. He's dealing with the end times and the features of the kingdom, uh, the, the kingdom of God in the end times and the role that believers play in God's kingdom. Believers would feature a prominent role on the world stage in the end times related to judging the unrighteous. It is silly then to abandon this lofty position and have those who do not possess your wisdom and who will ultimately be judged by you to act as judges on your behalf. And yet you are supposed to be the one who's wise in the Lord. You're going to judge them. And these believers are taking each other before the people they're supposed to judge. Those who do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, the believers were walking each other outside of the kingdom of God and standing before the kingdom of, of this world and saying, help us resolve our issues. And Paul is saying, what is happening there? That is that is condescending to your role and to what God has established for you in his kingdom. So Paul dealt with it in verse two. He dealt with it in verse two because you know what factions bring? You know what arrogance brings? It brings incompetence. It brings incompetence. I know you have dealt with conflict. I know among even the fellowship of many Christians at the extension of my voice that there have been conflicts. And I know at times you have you have felt as though this individual or these individuals have not resolved the issue. Well, if they are themselves tied to schism and faction and they're arrogant and all this and immoral, they will be incompetent to deal with issues because that's what arrogance and everything breeds. It's incompetence. They're relying upon their own wisdom. The believers are the most competent or should be. Because they possess divine wisdom from above. They should be the most competent. You never really hear churches say, here are the issues we have resolved in our church. Churches today boast about the ongoing issues that exist among believers and champion victories that they think they've received against the world. It's silly. Because what they should be saying is, here are all the issues that our precious saints are resolving amongst themselves. Yes, the issues come up, but they don't result in fracture, disfellowship, schism. They can resolve these matters together. You only need to be born again and endowed with God's spirit. I'm sad that that sounds overly simplistic because so much confusion has entered in on how do we deal with one another in the life and body of Christ, in the life of the church and body of Christ. And Paul is saying this furthermore, that not only are they competent, they also can view each other the proper way. So Paul is saying when you two believers or believers have a conflict with one another, you can view one another the way that God tells you to. You're made in God's image. You are born again. We are going to spend an eternity together to worship him. But these Corinthians couldn't even stand each other in the time that they had together and were taking each other to court. So you have people saying they can't wait to get the glory and they can't stand the people who are saying they're Christians here. Who do you think is going to be in glory? They can't stand people crafted in God's image, born again by Christ, 
those who look like Christ and act like Christ and think like Christ. And yet they sing, they sing and they say, we can't wait to be with Christ in glory. And what Paul saw was he saw through that. He saw through that because remember, the Corinthians were very religious. They were very religious. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Very religious, but religiously wrong. And so Paul says your conflicts are showing that you're living lives of contradiction. Essentially, in this matters of judging the believers judgments, the believers could walk into any courtroom and assume the judgeship. Believers could walk into any courtroom. Any of you who are believers can walk into any courtroom and assume judgeship because you have God's word and his wisdom. You could assume it and you could provide a proper remedy to cases on the courtroom's docket. Why? Well, because they possess the wisdom of the ultimate judge who judges matters. Further, in verse three, they would judge the angels. Paul is again referring to believers in the body of Christ who feature prominent in judging even the divine issues. So why are you getting hung up against one another in temporal issues? Why are your conflicts based on temporal things when you will be judging divine matters that are elevated well beyond? And I bet even slightly more complex than the temporal issues. If believers are going to judge divine issues successfully, because this isn't just judging them. It's talking about the kind of judgments that will be successful. Do you not know that we will judge angels? He's not saying you'll be incompetent in that. You'll be highly competent in that task. How much more matters of this life? You should be highly competent then as we reduce. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser as, as we reduce our thinking to the world's issues. They would judge the angels. We would judge the angels. So believers are going to judge these divine issues successfully. Why then go to the world who will be judged? Why are you going to God's enemies to judge God's issues? Who to this day are under judgment. So you're going to people, Paul says to the Corinthians, who are under judgment to judge your issues. To judge in matters of righteousness. You're going to them for wisdom to resolve divine things or earthly things with divine implications. It ought not to be so. So Paul certainly pressed in on the contradictions and he does that so well because I do believe that that is the way that Christ himself perfectly uh, dealt with many of the, the wickedness and the wicked things that were around him. Believers should be readily available and skillfully able to even judge matters of this life. When I'm saying that, I'm basing it solely on being born again, your position and your ability to consult God's wisdom in his word. That's what I'm appealing to. I'm not appealing to just saying you should do something or we should do something or I should do something and just you figure out how that looks. No, if you're born again by God's spirit and you have his word, you can judge the matters of this life. There may be some time you have to consult with one another and you have to go to prayer and you have to exercise patience before the Lord in your prayer. But believers can judge matters of this life. We have the most sober uh, thoughts. We have the most righteous thoughts. We have the most pure motives and we want what God wants. Therefore, we can judge in a manner that agrees with him and his 
divine wills and, and his, his divine will and his decrees. However, in Corinth, this was not the case. This was not the case. Paul wrote it was foolish to have the world's courts resolve issues for believers. Since the world's courtroom had nothing to do with the heavenly courts. Now, I'm not saying you never go to court. I'm saying you never go to court against your brother. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying don't. And even before that, Jesus said, if it's able, if you're able to, if it's best for you, you should try to uh, come to accord with even those who are your enemies before you enter the courtroom. So he's not saying, how dare you? You're in sin if you're in the courtroom. He's not saying that. He's saying you should resolve conflict with your fellow brothers before you end up before worldly judges. And Jesus says if they're trying to drag you into the courts, then you should try to come to a resolution. If you can't and you end up in the courts with unbelievers trying to charge you with something or slander you with something or accuse you with something, just pray for wisdom in your testimony. So I believe you can join the two together and come to accord and say, you know, this is what God wants concerning my fellowship with believers. But this is also how I must carry myself with respect to the enemy uh, using unbelievers to accuse the brethren and him doing it himself. So it was not the case. It was not the case there. Unbelieving judges have no function in the life of the church. They have no function in the life of the church. It ha they have nothing to do with what is happening in the church. It's why Paul says what he says. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So he's saying you're electing your judges to settle your disputes because you can't settle your disputes among one another. And these judges you're appointing and selecting and electing, they have nothing to do with the church. However, in Corinth, it was certainly that they treated these judges as though they were elevated beyond the believers. These judges do not possess the nature or ability to render a proper verdict, especially since they don't believe. In verse 6, the fact that this took place, look at verse 6. Well, look at verse 5 first. It says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? There should be at least one wise man if you can't come to accord with one another who can step in and help you. He doesn't say just one man. He doesn't say just find a person who's wearing the title elder. No, he says there should be someone who's wise if you believe the conflict has raged on so uh, determinately and that you're so set against one another. He says find someone who's wise to handle the conflict. And submit yourself to the wisdom of God. He doesn't mean just wise, but the wisdom of God. One wise man who will be able to, to decide between his brethren. So it's the one wise man is a believer who looks at the two who are in conflict as brothers. That we're all brothers. So let's resolve the issues as such. He talks about the need for believers to always be reconcilable with one another. And then he says in verse six, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Paul wrote this should have called shame toward the Corinthians who were suing one another and dragging one another before the world's courts. Paul believed Christians were above the natural laws in this way. I'm going to give you specifically. 
I'm not saying above the law to disobey it, but above the natural laws in this way, that they were subject to the divine laws of the kingdom of God, which were elevated well beyond the laws that are enacted in this world, sometimes by individuals who pervert justice and the intent of the law. But the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So he's appealing to the, the divine law in matters of dispute and in matters of practical guidance for one's life. Therefore, why place yourself, place themselves in Corinth under the natural laws simply for the selfish thrill of conflict? You see, they were selfish. There is a thrill. There is a drama. There's a fleshly excitement in conflict for some. Now, some don't want any conflict, so they never resolve any issues. But what Paul is saying is conflict for its own sake and then to try to let that conflict fester and heighten and then go before unbelievers to resolve it. That's wrong. That's fraudulent itself. So Paul reasoned with them in verse seven. He says, actually, then it is already a defeat for you. No matter who wins before the court of the law in the in the unrighteous court of the law, no matter who wins, you've been defeated because you ended up there in the first place. The fact that you have lawsuits with one another. And then he goes to something that I want you to think about very closely. It were better for them. Because, well, here's the issue. He reasons that way because since the sins were mutual between those in conflict. So both are in sin is what he's saying. Both these individuals, uh, he's picturing individuals. And I believe he's picturing very real scenarios but we don't have the names of the people. But those who were partakers in this, they had mutual sins and mutual conflicts related to those sins. It were better for them to consider being wrong and defrauded and therefore to seek forgiveness and restoration. In other words, what's been done is done. What has happened has happened. It's better for me to forgive you and seek to be restored together, re- reconciled together. And there's also a time in which one must turn the other cheek. There also is a time in which Paul is pointing to that you are going to be wrong. People are going to swindle you. People are going to treat you in a way that just is unbefitting. And yet God sees. God will avenge. God, uh, vengeance belongs to him. But we don't go, hey, Satan's kingdom need you to expedite judgment for me because God's taken a little too long. No, it's to I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bless you. And in fact, if this is evidence that you're not saved, I'm going to pray for your salvation. But if we can be reconciled, I want to be reconciled. And that wrong you did, if you if 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 you do not uh, propose to do it again, the Lord is forgiving you for it anyway. But if you do it again, then God's going to judge you anyway. He's going to judge you. No judgment I can come up with. No anger, no frustration, no vengeance I could take matches the vengeance of the Lord. So Paul is saying, why not rather be wrong? And he talks about this even as we went through it in Romans. And Jesus talks about it in the Beatitudes. How the Pharisees, one characteristic of the Pharisees is that they went around, quote unquote, loving only the people who love them. But when it came to their enemies, there was a ferocity, a ferocious uh, appetite to destroy their enemies. And he's saying, why not rather be wrong? You're going to be wrong. You're in you're in the world, not of the world. People are going to wrong you. And sometimes people will come into the church who are in and of the world. 
And yet they're going to wrong you. And he says it will happen. You can't be surprised when it happens. Peter talks that way. Being, not being surprised at the fiery trials that overtake us. It will happen. But he also says if you and I are confessing to be Christians, we need to come to a resolution. We need to reconcile our conflict. We shouldn't tiptoe around each other, passive aggressively take shots at each other. What we should do is sit down and say, I have a conflict with you. And you seem to have a conflict with me. Let's open up the word. Let's pray about it. And let's let's resolve this conflict together. That's what Paul wanted for them, because there is a beauty in reconciliation. There really is. I'm not saying it's always possible and it always happens. I'm saying the Christian must always be open to it. And so he reasoned with them in this area. It's better for them to consider being wronged and defrauded than to go before the world's judges. It's just better to be wronged because God's going to make it right. God's going to make it right. Satan is not going to right your wrongs. His kingdom is not going to right your wrongs. What his kingdom will do is instigate, heighten, put you in perpetual conflict so that perpetual anger and frustration continues to mount and build. And so that your responses will uh, will tell people with your mouth you're a Christian, but your life will say, I'm not a Christian. That's what Satan wants. And that's what his courtroom does. Essentially, this was not being done to unbelievers from believers. It was happening between confessing Christians. This was happening between confessing Christians. He said, you do this even to your brethren. You do this even to your brethren. Verse 8. You're guilty of wronging and defrauding others. So it's not like they're sitting there, poor them, They're being wrong and defrauded and nobody's here to help us. No, he's saying if you're being wrong and defrauded by fellow Christians, go resolve the conflict. But he's saying, but the issue is not that. The issue is you're you're doing it to them. And you're saying, whoa, you did it back to me. Let's go before unrighteous judges. So you can't swindle and, and wrong and defraud others is what Paul is saying and then expect to be treated righteously. That's the issue. Because he's saying you do this to your brethren, you you do, you wrong and defraud them, and you have a sense of justice because you feel a certain kind of way when you're wronged and defrauded. So he's saying resolve it between one another, but don't go before the unrighteous and try to pretend that you're righteous. Instead, resolve the conflict because that's the righteous approach. And if there's restitution to be had, then restitution is necessary. The Corinthians were attacking each other. They were attacking each other. And I believe that what Paul says in verse 9, it shows how those attacks were coming in. It shows it. The sin nature, but specific sins. The Corinthians were attacking each other through slander, covetousness, anger. I would even say sexual immorality. They were attacking each other. They weren't serving one another, not in this area. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul is essentially calling them not to be today who they were before. Especially in matters of conflict, especially in matters of living. 
He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I'm not saying that every Corinthian he is talking to was all of the things he mentioned here. But if the shoe fits in whatever sin that they were partakers of, it was unrighteous. And if it was unrighteous, he's saying if you can't handle righteous issues amongst yourselves, it might be because you're unrighteous. And if you're unrighteous, then that means you have to understand who belongs to the kingdom. And if you're righteous, you have to understand who belongs to the kingdom. So Paul wrote this and he wrote it essentially, I believe, to explain who it was they used to be. Why then are you acting toward one another from who you once were? Why are we handling these things in the flesh? And then he's specific. He's very specific about the sins he mentions. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So there's deceptions on two fronts. There's deceptions to act like this toward one another. And there's deceptions to go to magistrates, judges, and courtrooms who are the individuals listed and who are the unrighteous, who are the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the infeminate, the homosexuals, the thieves, the covetous, the drunkards, the swindlers, the haters. And you're going to them and saying, can you help the righteous resolve our issues? That's what Paul is saying. They're not in the kingdom of God. Why are you passing kingdom issues to them? They won't inherit the kingdom, and yet you're letting them inherit your issues. It's deception on both fronts. You're making them believe that they're righteous enough to handle your issues, and you're making them believe that you're unrighteous and that Christ has done nothing for you. Paul called them to remember who they once were. You were once this way, but no more. He told them, do not be deceived, for they were prone to deception if they continued in this path. Paul reminded them as to record the list of sins, as I've mentioned, as those who were guilty of practicing these sins amongst one another. Each of these sins were once inherent in the people, but were also once welcome vices among the people. For earlier, Paul wrote in chapter four that the Corinthians were not only allowing these sins, but they were welcoming those who sinned in these ways. It gives you a glimpse as to why they're starting to go back into the world to resolve their issues. Because they welcome the world into the church. And so now they believe the world is somewhat legitimate to handle their issues. This is not, Paul is saying, who they are, who they were, and who they are called to be. Because they were saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. The caution to the Corinthians was this. None of those who practice the sins mentioned belong to the kingdom of God. It's very simple. You remember he said, expel the immoral man. However, Paul called them toward the reality of their salvation. That's how we approach conflict. The reality of our salvation. What has it done for us? What has God forgiven us? How do we deal with one another in the Based on the basis of what he has accomplished in us. But they had to walk in it. Everything that Paul's saying is when he appeals to them by God's mercy and calls out for them to live out their sanctification, he's telling them you have to prove that this is the case by your walk, by how you respond to the things I've written in this letter. He called them to remember they were once like those in verse 10. You and I, we were once like those in verse 10. Uh, verses 9 and 10. 
You may be looking and going, well, I wasn't that one. I wasn't that one. But you were one of them, if not all of them. And Paul is saying we were once that way. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to resolve conflict that way. We don't have to resolve our issues that way. And we don't have to live that way because it's hopeless. He called them to remember that they were once that way because he wanted them to remember what they are now. They were once like those in the modern society around them in the Roman Empire. They were once like those individuals. But he wanted them to be this way no more. Why? Why does he not want them to to be this way? Look at verse 11 as we close. He says, such were some of you, not such are some of you. These people always saying the church is a household of sinners. No, it's not. The world is a household of sinners. Church is a household for the righteous. Who, when we sin, we go before God and man if that's the case. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. So you're not that way anymore. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I believe it's not only that what Paul is saying here is how we approach the conflict. I believe he's appealing to what should be the end of the conflict. If we remember these things about one another, we don't stay in conflict very long. And if we remember these things as we enter into conflict, because there will be conflicts, then those conflicts will not rage on. Because we're not only remembering this about ourselves, we're remembering how we came into fellowship in the first place. It was Christ who brought us from what is said about us and the Corinthians in verses 9 and 10. He rescued us from that. Let's pray.